0: Welcome, we're Kevin Smith and Mark Bleicher from Arate Incident Response. We're excited to share actual incident response cases, chat about IT security, and introduce you to the most influential players in the industry. With that, let's get moving, and thanks for joining this episode of Security Superpowers. Welcome to another episode of Security Superpowers. I'm Kevin Smith, and keeping me company this morning is Mr. Stephen Ramey. Well, Mark takes some much-needed time off. Good morning, Steve. How you doing?
1: Good morning, Kevin. I'm well, thank you. How about yourself?
0: I'm doing great, Steve. Pretty excited about our guest today, so I'm going to jump right in, if you don't mind, and introduce him. He was a former Brigadier General in the United States Air Force during his military career. Uh, he was Director of Intelligence at the J-2 uh, U.S. Atlantic Command. Deputy Director of Operations at the NSA, as well as Commander of the Air Force Technical Application Center. He was previously Vice President of Cyber Services and Chief Cyber Strategist for Fidelis. He managed the network defense and forensic business at General Dynamics, including the Digital Forensics Lab. And the Governor of Rhode Island, Gina Raimondo, recently appointed Jim to the state's Cyber Commission. It is my pleasure and honor to welcome our very own Mr. Jim Yeager. Thanks for joining us today, Jim.
2: Well, thank you, Kevin. It's uh, it's exciting to be able to join you and maybe provide, uh, you know, what I can probably provide is historical perspective, <laughs> given how many years I've been in this biz- business. Well,
0: well, Jim, we'd love to get a little bit of that historical perspective, if you don't mind, uh, you know, from the Air Force to the NSA – uh, you have an amazing track record. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, I, I think a, a, a couple of perspectives there. Um, and the first one is is a little bit tongue-in-cheek uh, because NSA certainly has not approved it. But usually the short answer to, the, to this question is, well, I spent 25 years hacking into other countries, and now I catch hackers. But again, that that is not the NSA approved uh, (laughs) statement. Uh, No, I I, I think there are so many ways that uh, both the the Air Force and the the various NSA organizations that i worked in really prepared me. Uh, A lot of it was uh, really growing up in a very high tech arena. Uh, with incredibly mission-oriented and dedicated uh, teams. And that's a lot of what I see uh, in the uh, combating cybercrime arena and uh, in Arite, uh in particular. Uh, I was frankly uh, blessed to have some amazingly exciting jobs. Uh it, in the government half of my career and and now in industry as well. Um again I mentioned high tech uh, had the opportunity to command AFTAC, uh the Air Force Technical Applications Center, which is our nuclear the US's nuclear treaty monitoring organization, for three years with a, a network of sensors and sites all over the world. Uh, observing foreign nuclear developments. Uh, incredible, rewarding assignment. Uh, then got to go back later uh, to NSA again, and we'll talk a little bit about my intern job uh, at NSA separately because I think that's so important for all of our teams today to get those growth and and those intern opportunities, but uh, eventually went back to NSA the second time as the uh, assistant director of operations. Uh, What an incredible organization, Uh, their capabilities uh, in the, the things they do to safeguard the United States. It's just very, very rewarding. And then finally, uh, the last uh, active duty military assignment was really interesting too because uh I had the opportunity to be the only non-navy director of intelligence or J2 in the history of Atlantic Command so we were providing intelligence support to nuclear submarines operating across the Atlantic and uh Make sure that I knew how to do that. I had to go out and spend spend some days and nights on submarines, which uh, not very many Air Force officers get to do.
0: <laughs> I would say that you were on a very short list. <laughs> hey, um, I, I, I want to highlight the AFTEC role for just a moment. Um, you mentioned that you know there's people stationed all over the world. Um, you know, essentially, uh, what would amount to be a pretty complex network of people and sites and and uh, locations all collecting data uh, beaming it back to the mothership if you will um, somewhat of a foreshadowing to today's modern workforce structure wouldn't you say
2: yeah it, it truly was ironically again in, in and NSA uh, the in Both those organizations in the early days, let's say the 50s and and even 60s, we put huge numbers of people out around the world in in sites to collect the information that was so important to us. Uh, I had the opportunity, you know, joining those organizations in the 70s and the 80s uh, where we were Bringing a lot of people back from not only overseas but some very remote, isolated places overseas, and just re- we'd have ma- maintainers out there at the front end, but um, most of the data was being remoted back to headquarters locations where uh, people could live much better lives with their families and and uh, and still do the important work ironically that's that is so similar in some ways to the way we operate in in Arite. Um We really are a virtual organization uh, Our people are spread across the uh, the US uh, Canada India uh, now Japan and Singapore and Israel uh, but they can remote into our servers. Our our forensic lab, and and this is certainly a far cry from uh, what I was doing at the DOD Cybercrime Center or Defense Computer Forensics Lab, where we had a a big, solid brick-and-mortar laboratory. Now our our lab is virtually unmanned, and our forensic examiners remote into the servers, uh, pull down the data that they need to look at pull down the tools that they're going to use, and they can do that from anywhere in the world. Uh, We can have people in the U.S. or Canada operating in our time zones uh, on a case or a project, and uh, if needed, uh, we can have people in India, Israel, and other time zones uh, working on essentially the same data uh, in alternating shifts so it, it's really incredible the, where we are today yeah, it certainly is
1: jim and you know you, you talked about the, the modern day look of this you know how about the uh, how about thinking back to the beginning of your career how has the threat landscape changed with uh, the cyber uh, extortion with modern day cyber extortion versus what it was back in the, in the early
2: days yeah that's a that is a great question steve Uh, You know, there are are some distinct trends and also some things that don't seem to change much. Uh, One that doesn't seem to change much is the offense versus defense. Uh, What we tend to see is attackers will gain uh, an advantage typically for a relatively short time. Defenders will then enhance their technical capabilities and and their skills to counter uh, those attacks. And then the attackers have to take another step up the ladder. Um, Ironically, that goes back clearly to World War II uh, with the origination of radar and then uh, electronic countermeasures or counter counter measures to jam radars. And it's just continued up to to the modern day. Kind of, uh, again, through uh, what we call electronic combat back then to the cyber warfare that that we see today. One of the trends, though, that's a little bit, uh, I wouldn't, I guess I'd say maybe disturbing, uh, certainly, uh, is a huge challenge to us is that in the, the early days of electronic combat and cyber warfare, uh, the targets tended to be government organizations. And so you had uh, foreign governments attacking us, and our government organizations were defending. Now, so much of it has moved to cyber crime and attacks on industry and private individuals and you know that's certainly broadened in a huge way uh, the base that we have to defend.
0: So speaking of offense defense uh, I'm curious to what your thoughts are with respect to nation-state players such as China and Russia, Iran, North Korea. What level of threat do they pose and given as you stated these, the lines between private and state-sponsored cybercrime is, is blurring, and it continues to blur every single day. Um, what, what, what can we do about it? What are we doing about it? How, how, how much of a threat is this?
2: Yeah, that's, that really is a, a huge challenge for the U.S., especially as some of those nation-state actors now start to go after industry, uh, to steal sensitive technology, that type of thing. Uh, it, that's the arena that we don't always see everything because oftentimes some of the nation state actors are, are very, very sophisticated and hard to detect, uh, but they are out there operating. What's really interesting is in the last couple of years, uh, you know, the, the two big players, and there are a number of, of other players, but the two big players are probably Russia and China. And getting to where we are today, they've kind of come at things from the opposite spec- ends of the spectrum. Um, the, the Chinese very clearly, uh, this was a government orchestrated cyber program. Uh, but what we're now starting to see kind of 15, 20 years into, uh, the Chinese committing cyber attacks, uh, we're starting to see some of the, the former government personnel are leaving government service and breaking off on their own, generally into uh, uh, more criminal attacks. The, uh, the irony is the Russians are coming at it from the opposite end. Uh, you know, 15, 20, 25 years ago, when the Soviet Union collapsed, there were a lot of highly trained intelligence officers uh out of work and with with very limited economic uh prospects and so a lot of them turned to criminal hacking what we're seeing now though is that the russian government is starting to use criminal hackers uh to further their national security goals so again the chinese are moving from government hackers to, to we're seeing a lot more criminal activity from Russia. The criminal activity has been there for 15, 20 years, but we're seeing the Russian government become more sophisticated in, in using those organizations.
0: So on our last episode, um, Stephen and I with Leonid, um discussed that fact uh, that some of these threat actors – in Russia, are nearly given safe haven by the government, uh, which makes sense since they're recruiting them. Um, would it be safe to say that, uh, as a result, uh, aside from it increasing the number of people doing it, um, that it emboldens people to do this sort of activity?
2: Yes, it it really does. the The risks are so low to cyber criminals and hackers in Russia, that it, it does encourage the activity. I think the the uh, first case where that really came home to roost, uh, it was the WorldPay hack uh, in Atlanta. Now, that was one and one of the things that we really believe in is, as, as both of you are well aware of, is working closely with law enforcement which we did on that hack. Uh, In this case, we, in some cases, we work with Secret Service. Uh, In other cases, we work with FBI. It just depends on who's got the lead. FBI had the lead on this one. We did work very closely with them um, and essentially provided all of our evidence uh, to the FBI. Uh, Amazingly, the uh, director of the FBI at the time flew to Moscow and ne- negotiated the arrest of the hackers, uh, which we thought was pretty cool and pretty in- incredible because it was the first ever arrest of cyber criminals in the USSR for an attack committed again via the network into the US. And uh, we, we
0: <laughs> Which is, you know, it, it seems odd, don't you think, um, you know, given the, uh, the current state of affairs? Yeah.
2: I, it, it came at a time when cybercrime, you know, it, there's kind of peaks and valleys in the visibility that it gets. And visibility was very high, uh, and it, it came at a time where we had some leverage uh, against the Russians. Like I said, it took the FBI director flying to Moscow to, to negotiate the arrests. The, uh, the rest of the story is kind of interesting as well. Um, again, we provided the evidence uh, to the FBI, who provided it to the Russian government. Uh, they prosecuted the, the criminals. And to your point about kind of a shelter or a haven in the USSR, Um, we we were very disappointed. They were convicted and got probation. So that that kind of points to what you were talking about. Um, But the irony was uh, about six months to a year and a half later, uh, WorldPay started getting checks periodically from the Russian government. And... Uh, what they did is they seized these guys' boats and cars and apartments and uh, were selling them and forwarding that money to uh, RBS WorldPay. I don't think they ever got back the uh, the ten million that had been stolen in that ATM cash out. But it's kind of a a great case study, uh, you know, in terms of the positioning of cyber crime in Russia.
0: I think, you know, uh, hearing that, it, it, it kind of makes you wonder if they, uh, attacked the wrong company and, uh, the, yeah. <laughs> the Russians were like, I Hey, you, you gotta, you gotta pay up. You're
2: right on target there. So you asked, you asked, uh, uh earlier about what out of, um, my government time, uh, prepared me for, uh, the irritate of today and in, in the, our combat against, uh, cyber criminals. And interestingly, one of the, uh, the big factors was a three year internship at NSA. Uh, I'd had a couple of assignments, uh, in the air force and I guess, I would have to admit that my uh, career and maybe my performance was kind of mediocre. But when I got that internship at NSA, things really started to come together. And uh, that's when my career started to take off. So uh, that's one reason that Joe and I really believe in giving interns uh, an opportunity. Uh, We have a number now. Uh, of interns within Eritay. And one of the initiatives that we're really working on is a partnership with the uh, Leahy uh, Cybercrime Center at uh, Champlain University in uh, upper uh, Vermont. Uh, I think this is gonna give us the opportunity to really expand uh, our work with students uh, the Leahy Center uh, provides SOC services. Uh, they, there's a leading forensic school. And so uh, we are really looking forward to uh, working with them to, to really expand uh, our work with students.
0: You know, I, I think that's fantastic um, in the sense that you're, you're fostering interest among young people to explore the, this industry, the cybersecurity industry, you know, I get, I get the sense from some younger people when I talk to them that they don't fully understand the cybersecurity environment. Uh, you know, that I mean, there's, there's so many skills required, uh, in this industry. You're, you know, you're not always crouched over a computer crunching data and searching through millions of lines of logs. Um, you know, the, the, the efforts that that uh, that we have going on uh, up in Vermont are going to be instrumental, I believe, at uh, at bringing to light the the many facets of this industry and whether they're hard skills or soft skills. But um, but I I'm excited to see uh, how our efforts play out up there.
2: You bet, Kevin. Um, you know, I think what's so important in what you just said the uh, all of the TV shows now uh, CSI Miami uh NCIS and all of its different versions uh, make in particular cyber forensics look very sexy uh, and and it is it it's exciting work it's great work uh but what's often overlooked is the cybersecurity dimension uh and that's what I think is so important. Um, you know, it, it is gratifying to help uh, companies and individuals that have been hacked, and they're scared, and they don't, you know, don't know if this is the end of their company or or what's going to happen. And to be able to come in and kind of calm the waters, show them a path forward, solve the the breach. Uh, and then at least contain it, uh, and hopefully do some serious remediation, uh, going forward. Uh, that's, that's very satisfying, but frankly, what's, what's really important is preventing the breach, uh, from ever happening. And that's where the cybersecurity dimension of what we do, I think is, is so incredibly important.
1: Jim, would you would you say that part of the uh, the dimension would include a collaboration with uh, between the private sector and intelligent agencies and law enforcement?
2: Yes, very very definitely. Um, both the intelligence agencies and law enforcement see different parts of the problem uh, than than we do. Uh, some of the tech. You know the techniques may be similar, but the scale on which they're deployed—that uh, type of thing—it uh, it is so important to, to share intelligence, uh, and and not just with those that are kind of involved in the, the hand-to-hand combat with cyber criminals, but also sharing the intelligence with those that are developing the tools and, and technologies that we really need.
1: Yeah, that, that certainly is. And that's the biggest uh, piece to this puzzle is, is uh, you know, how much information actually exists out there that isn't making it back to that central, you know, kind of um, uh, consortium that that puts up those defenses. Um, I guess, you know, kind of thinking about that then, what what do you think would, what do you think would, um, are things that every organization should be doing to mitigate the threats that they're
2: facing. Ah, okay. Um, So part of that's tied to the top three biggest uh, cybercrime threats facing organizations today. Those three are ransomware, and ransomware, and ransomware. Uh, it's unbelievable the the devastation that ransomware is is causing today, especially to small and medium sized businesses, which are probably behind the power curve. From you know the, the big banks can throw a lot of money into defense. Oftentimes the the small and medium sized businesses either don't have the money or they don't understand how critically important it is. And, and ransomware is just causing an incredible damage. The good news is that there are a, a number of, of techniques, you know, good cyber hygiene, uh, using complex passwords, changing the passwords periodically, uh, doing patch management, all of that takes time and effort um, and, and should be done. But in today's environment, there's probably two factors that I'd really highlight. Uh, two factors, that's good. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even think about that until it came out of my mouth. But obviously, one of those is two-factor authentication. Uh, It's easy to get around passwords uh, unless you're using a multi-factor, at a minimum, a two-factor authentication process. The other one that is so critical and, frankly, reasonably priced, is endpoint detection and response, EDR. Um, There are some behavioral-based Endpoint solutions out there today, uh, some of them very sophisticated, using machine learning uh, and artificial intelligence that just stop ransomware dead in its tracks. Uh, they de- they well. Let me jump back. You know, one of the things that's so sad on a, on you know so many of the ransomware projects that you all do. And and I know you're painfully aware of it is every victim hit by ransomware has got antivirus and antivirus is basically worthless. Uh, So what I really advocate is people take the money that they're putting into antivirus and just move that over to uh, a a good EDR system. Uh, As Again, you all are well aware that's the first thing we do on a ransomware project is deploy Sentinel-1, uh, by far the best EDR system out there, deploy it and contain that that breach, that attack, so that we can then help the, the client restore into a clean environment. Uh, it is so effective, and frankly... This is where I struggle a little bit with the uh, uh, cyber insurance industry that we support. Uh, I'm not sure if I were an underwriter, uh, I'm not sure I would write a, a cyber insurance policy that covered ransomware without requiring that the client had an EDR system because it's just that effective. It could cut insurance losses and cut our victims losses tremendously.
0: You know, um, Jim, to that point, I, I have to ask, as it relates to the insurance industry, you would think that an industry that's swimming in data, so much so that they rely on on their mantra, the law of large numbers, as a backstop to nearly all of their products and services, um, these carriers seem to have been blindsided with their cyber liability policies to the extent that their solution is to insure a problem, and the reality is, um, you, you know, they're not insuring a victim's problem anymore because the insurance carriers are the victims. Um, if there was, if there was one piece of advice. That uh, that you could tell that entire industry. What would it be?
2: Great, great, great question, Kevin. Um, I think the good news is that I'm starting to see a pendulum swing back towards more focus on cybersecurity as as policies are being written. Uh, it's kind of ironic uh, we saw a lot more of that 15 20 years ago in terms of the, the questionnaires that clients would have to fill out when they were applying for cyber insurance and and then even some outside testing and verification that in fact they were you know the, the information provided was accurate they had good, security programs uh and that they were effective. Uh as cybersecurity I'm sorry, cyber insurance started to explode about 10 years ago, I think it became a land grab. And companies wanted to write as many cyber policies as fast as they could. And, and so they became less interested in lowering the risk. Well, as you noted, costs are going up uh, in terms of cyber claims, and I think that's starting to drive uh, more focus on cybersecurity back into the industry.
0: Um, I think, Jim, I think we could talk for hours. You are so, so interesting, <laughs> and I appreciate you uh you joining us here. I want you to promise me publicly right now uh that you'll come back and uh and join us again for a uh, for another one of our episodes.
2: Good. I really look forward to that. Um there's some exciting things that we're working on right now. Frankly, to help raise the level of cybersecurity uh for our clients uh and uh uh, you know, we're working with partners like Sentinel one. Uh, some of those will be announced in the, uh, uh, the coming weeks and months. And I really look forward to coming back and, and talking about uh, those initiatives and the, the impact they can have.
0: Well, well, that will definitely happen. Mark, Steve, and I are already exhaling a huge sigh of relief. We have content, so we're excited about that. So thank you. <laughs> um, Jim, I, I just want to end it here uh, for now with a huge thank you uh, for joining us and taking time out of your busy schedule to chat with us. You're a blast to be around, and, uh, and we can't wait to, uh, to have Good. you join us again. So thank you very much.
2: Okay. Thank you.
1: And I think, uh, Steve, that, uh, that pretty much wraps it up. Absolutely, man. Uh, this was uh, definitely enlightening. I've actually walked away with a few different points there that I'm going to use with my, uh, my future clients.
0: And that's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Eretay's very own Jim Yeager. I'd like to thank Colin Hanks and Severine Fortin for putting the super in superpowers, as they always do. And to you, our listeners, for spending time with us. Don't forget to join us again next time on Security Superpowers.